Well, good morning again, church. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it up now to Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 40. And that's found on page 925 in your pew Bibles. Today we're going to read about the abuse and mistreatment that the Apostle Paul and Silas experienced in the city of Philippi. It's interesting. I was, um, I was away this past week. I was doing a little bit of a, a writing retreat. It was finishing up the 2 Corinthians series and, um, and for end of the word. And you'll know that uh, in 2 Corinthians near the end, the Apostle Paul engages in what's called the fool's speech when... Um, when he's saying, listen, you guys have questioned my credentials. I'm not going to play credentials with you because there were these super apostles who were going through and trying to get folks following a different Jesus. And Paul says, I'm not going to do that. Uh, he says, if you want, just, do you want my resume? And then he actually starts giving them all the, the exact opposite of a resume. He's like, I've been beaten up more times than anybody you know. Uh, right? I've been in prison more times than anybody you know. Uh, I've been sicker, I've thrown up on the trail, I've, like he just starts going, and you're like, this is not a very good resume, right? But that's, that's the irony. Paul is saying, you don't really even know what it looks like to follow the crucified Jesus. But wait, so the point of sharing that is, one of the things he says there is, three times I was beaten with rods. And so, you know, because my job in the End of the Word podcast is trying to chase everything down, give you the background you need so that you can read the Bible and understand it better. And uh, I'm sitting there looking out there going, three times I was beaten with rods. Well, I know about the one in Philippi. What are the other ones? Do a little concordance search. You check the commentaries. And then the, they're not mentioned in Acts. Which I just share that to say, it's a reminder that all of these stories are selective, right? Like a lot more happened to the Apostle Paul and his traveling companions than is shared in these things. Just like at the end of the Gospels, you'll sometimes get now, you know, the, this is just a selection. The whole world couldn't contain all the, the, the story of all the things Jesus did. But just think about it. So the story we're reading today is shared as a representative sample of the kind of stuff the Apostle Paul had to put up with on his travels. How about that? Uh, you read this and you think once is enough. Uh, but anyway, we're going to get into it. We're going to read it. Now, we're going to read about the story of Paul's arrest, abuse, and mistreatment in the city of Philippi. In a, in a sermon uh, that John Piper rec- uh, recently, a few years ago anyway, preached to a group of pastors and preachers, he said this. He said, we must preach to prepare our people for suffering because coming to Christ means more suffering, not less. Suffering is normal, not exceptional. Suffering is certain. Well, did I have a bad thing? Oh, no, things are going fine. Suffering is certain. Most American Christians are not prepared in mind or heart to believe or experience this. Therefore, the glory of God, the honor of Christ, the stability of the church, and the strength of commitment to world missions are at stake. If preaching does not help our people be satisfied in God through suffering, the church will be a weakling in an escapist world of ease. And the completion of the Great Commission, with its demand for martyrdom, will fail. Closed quote. See, for the last 250 years, the Church of Jesus Christ in North America has been led by Jesus through some pretty green pastors. And, and besides some pretty still waters. But it does very much look, if we're reading the signs correctly, it does very much look like, should the Lord tarry the next 50 years, he'll be leading us through the valley in the shadow of death. And I wonder how many will fall away. I, I wonder 
how many will be revealed? Maybe, maybe even people in this room. I pray not. But how many of us will be revealed in this room as fair-weather Christians? And toward the end of preparing us to do well in the future along that different road, I want to speak to you about what it looks like to suffer as a Christian. Suffering is not something that should destabilize a Christian. It's not something that should undermine your faith. According to Jesus, suffering is par for the course. In Matthew 10, 24 to 25, Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house, Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So Jesus says, do you think that you're entitled to better treatment in this world than I received? Do you? Because you should not expect or you should not aspire to better treatment than the master. You should aspire to similar treatment, the same treatment. And therefore, you should experience and expect as normal abuse, mockery, mistreatment. Suffering is par for the course. That's what Jesus says. It should be the baseline expectation for the Christian. We do follow the crucified Christ, after all. And so how in the world, I don't know, someday they'll write a book, and they'll say, you know, how in the world, how in the world did we get prosperity gospel Christians, you know, in, in the late 20th century? Thankfully, the movement is kind of dying off. It's, but you think, that was weird, wasn't it? Like, how did, how did a version of Christianity come about that said, if you follow Jesus, you won't suffer, you'll be healthy all your, all your days, you should get the promotion at work, everybody should say good things about you, you should be shiny, happy people. How did that, where did that, how did that happen? Uh, you think, well, you, you sort of, I'm tempted to say that could only have been born in America, but that would be unkind. Uh, not untrue. Uh, it's, a, it's a strange distortion that is, could only have happened on this continent in a specific window of time. And, and, and it's an even greater oddity that it has been transported so far and so wide in the developing world. Certainly not what we're being told here in the Bible. We have been celebrated. It's been odd, though. I, I grant you this. Our experience for the last, you know, we've, we've just talked about 150 years, has been odd. So often we have had those green pastures. So often we have had those still waters. So often we have been welcomed and even celebrated in the very center of the public square. And so, there is a sense in which we shouldn't be surprised that right now Christians are trying to find their footing in the early days of suffering. This does feel strange to us. It feels wrong. We read the Bible and we say, okay, no, it's not wrong, but it feels wrong. It feels new. It feels strange. It feels scary. And we're out of practice. And so this passage that hopefully now lies open before you will be very helpful, I think, as it provides a case study in how to suffer as a Christian. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. 
And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Okay, so there's one. We don't know about the other two. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I mentioned, this episode in Acts 16 provides a case study in Christian suffering. So let's take a moment and identify the key features in the story. First thing we see here is that Paul and Silas were arrested for doing good. Paul and Silas didn't break any laws in this story. They were not doing anything rude or or disruptive. They were going to a prayer meeting. They were trying to help a little girl who was afflicted by a demon. That's important for us to see. None of the blessings promised in the Bible for those who suffer can be claimed by those who are suffering for doing sinful things. The apostles were always very careful to distinguish. They said, listen, you you might experience suffering in your life of various kinds. All these promises, all these blessings, this is for a particular kind. So they were always very careful to distinguish between righteous and regular suffering. So Peter said, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now you might say, Pastor, wait, 
What, what about, though, if we're arrested for preaching the gospel? What if the government were to make preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ illegal and we were to keep doing it and we were to be arrested? Would that qualify as righteous suffering? And the answer, of course, is yes. The Bible says that we're to obey the magistrate up until the point where the magistrate commands us to do something that God has forbidden. So we think, for example, of the, um, the Hebrew midwives when they were commanded to participate in genocide and they said no. So we're to obey the magistrate up until the point where the magistrate commands us to do something that's forbidden or forbids us to do that which was commanded. So we think of the apostles being forbidden to preach in the name of Christ. They said, well, we can't do that. Jesus literally sent us out to do that very thing. So that's, that's, that's when we can disobey. So if the government declares that preaching the gospel is illegal and we keep doing it and we get arrested, then that is righteous suffering. Interesting, I mentioned Dr. Michael Haken, and, and he was the one who found that picture. Uh, he's working through the records, putting our history together. I attended a historical, he's North America's foremost Christian historian. I attended a, uh, a lecture that he gave a number of months ago. Actually, it was probably a couple of years ago now. It's pre-COVID anyway. And uh, he said, in his opinion, it was just that, in his opinion, he says he expects that evangelical pastors in his lifetime and he's probably 60, late 60s, he expects that evangelical pastors in his lifetime in Canada will do jail time for preaching what the Bible says about sexuality and gender. Interesting to think about that. So there's difference, difference between suffering righteously and suffering simply because you're breaking the law. We need to understand that right now. Okay, Because if you are simply violating local noise ordinances or trespassing or harassing passers-by, that is not righteous suffering. And we need to get our house in order on this. We need to get this distinction nailed down. Because I guarantee you that there will be calls for us to support this or that pastor who has been arrested for this or that thing. We'll be... We'll be Well, anyone who's a Christian is going to support this pastor, and then you do a little digging, and you find out, well, wait a second, this pastor was arrested for taking a bullhorn into a public library. Or we'll be, you've got to support this pastor. This pastor was arrested in a a preaching the gospel in a public park. And you read a little deeper, and you discover, wait a second, set up a, you know, a sound system in a public park without a permit where people were gathered for picnics and, and was preaching and, and doing his thing there and was arrested. And the ticket wasn't for preaching the gospel. It was for violating local noise ordinances. Are we going to support that? This is already happening. Already there are calls. Already you'll be called a coward if you don't come out in support of this or that pastor who's, who's been arrested. And so we need to figure this out. What constitutes righteous suffering. Let me ask you a question that will help clarify your thinking. If you were at the park with your family and a Muslim imam set up a microphone and a speaker and started reading the Quran and preaching, what would you do? You want to know what I would do? I'd call the cops and I'd expect them to be given a ticket. That's not why I go to the park with my family, right? That's not what the park is for. And you can get permits for that, and you go in a particular place, and you can, you see what I'm saying? Put yourself on the other side. The same, we don't control the culture, so we got to play by the rules. we got to do the right thing the right way. That's my point. If you're arrested 
for doing the right thing the right way, then that is righteous suffering. But if you're arrested for doing the right thing the wrong way, then that's on you. And that's not what we see happening in the story. Paul and Silas do nothing wrong here. They're not inciting a riot. They're not marching through a public park with a bullhorn. All they're doing is praying and trying to help a little girl who's afflicted by a demon. So that's the first critical element of the story. They were arrested for doing good. Second thing we see here is that they endured abuse and mistreatment. Key word there, endured. Look again at verses 22 to 23. Hopefully you have your Bibles open. It says, the crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. All right, so they were beaten by an angry mob. They were humiliated by magistrates. They were subjected to unjust and illegal punishments. And yet, there's no mention in the story of them fighting back. There's, there's, it would be an interesting story, right, if the Apostle Paul grabbed the rod off one of the magistrates and started hitting some other people with it. That'd be a fascinating story. Not what happened, though. There's no mention of them swearing at the crowds. No mention of them denouncing the government. They don't do any of that. Even though I think an argument could be, could be made that, man, they were... All of this was unjust. None of this should have been happening. Their rights were being trampled on. Yes, yes, yes. And yet they endured all of that. They ate it. Why? Because Jesus said, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. You know the go with him one mile, go with him two? We always, we use that expression in a very generic way today. We say, well, you know, you got to go the extra mile. As a way of saying, like, you know, you got to give 110%. It's, you hear hockey players quoting that after, you know. Well, you know, we've been going the extra mile in practice. And, uh, and this, this evening we gave 150%. And that's why we won. First of all, that's bad math. Second of all, that's bad exegesis. Uh, go the extra mile. The Roman soldiers were allowed to conscript civilian labor to carry their equipment for up to one mile. The Romans, these wicked people who were abusing the people of God. <laughs> and Jesus says, you know what, if some wicked Roman comes along and he makes you carry his, his bundle of rods with which he abuses people, and he makes you carry his bundle of rods for a mile, you say, no, sir, I'd be happy to carry that for two miles. Jesus said that. Jesus said that. That's in the Bible. It's in the red letters, so I don't care how bad your hermeneutic is, you're going to have a hard time getting rid of it. There it is, Right? Here's something we got to understand. we got to get our act together, right? Because we're in the very early days. Thank goodness this has come on us slowly and gradually because it gives us time to figure this out, doesn't it? Here's something you need to understand real quick. We are not in the fight back business. We are not in the defend your rights business. We are in the represent Jesus business. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He said that while he was being illegally, unjustly nailed 
to a cross. So that's the bar. That's what Jesus said. And as servants, we're supposed to imitate the master. Now, at the end of the story, the Apostle Paul does call upon his legal rights as a Roman citizen. This whole thing happened. It was mob justice, right? And the assumption was, remember, the the crowd said, these are Jews. And so the magistrates, in, in the rush of trying to appease this angry crowd, and by the way, you know that, right? You know that oftentimes politicians make quick decisions without thinking it through, in order to appease an angry or, a, or frightened populace. You know that, right? And sometimes that works out to our disfavor, as it does here for, for Paul. So they assumed, hey, we've got this angry crowd. We've got a couple of Jews, and, and we're not too worried about, about their situation. We're more worried about this crowd. And so they immediately started punishing the, these Jewish men. What they didn't know is that they were also Roman citizens. And therefore, the entire thing was illegal. The apostle Paul points that out, she calls him. He basically makes a legal appeal. He asks, is what you've just done legal? Can I get a ruling on that? And they look, and they discover, whoa, actually, wait a second. It was not legal. There's an apology given, and the event is wiped from the record. So the Bible doesn't say that we can't make use of the law. It doesn't say that we can't appeal through the courts. But it does say that we can't use violence and we cannot return reviling for reviling. Indeed, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that's the standard. Okay, so they were arrested for doing good. They endured abuse and mistreatment. And then thirdly, they rejoiced in the midst of their trial. Look there at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Praying and singing hymns to God. Now, while this is certainly, it's a remarkable, it's an outstanding example of how to suffer as a Christian, it's not a unique example. We think, of course, to the story recorded in Acts 5, where the apostles were arrested and beaten. Luke tells us that when they were released, they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So this is what the disciples practiced, and this is what the disciples preached, It'd be hard to take if we didn't have some of these stories. James, the Apostle James, brother of the Lord, saying things like this. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James told the believers to count it all joy. Rejoice. Sing a hymn. Have a hymn ready for the next time someone hits you with a stick. Have a hymn ready. Count it all joy, my brethren. Because you know, this is going to make you stronger, right? This is going to refine your faith. This is going to increase your your, your faith in Jesus, your confidence as a believer. It's going to strengthen you. And of course, it's going to amplify your witness. And actually, you know, it's going to increase your reward in eternity. So really, what are you so upset about. You shouldn't be freaking out. You shouldn't be lashing out. Shouldn't be turning on each other. Shouldn't be waging war on the government. Should be rejoicing. Should count it all joy. Suffering strengthens our faith, enhances our witness, increases our reward on Judgment Day. And so we see Paul and Silas are not complaining in this story. 
They're not rallying the, the prisoners to make a, a break for it. They're not starting up a political action campaign. They are praying and singing hymns to God. That's what Christians are supposed to do when they suffer in the cause of Christ. And when they do that, everyone around them tends to stand up and take notice. That's the fourth thing I want you to see here. They made an impression on all those who witnessed their ordeal. Look again at verse 25. Luke says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And, and of course, as we go on to find out in the story, it's not just the prisoners who are listening to them. The jailer is listening to them as well. Verses 26 to 28, Luke says, suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened. Everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Now, a little bit of background. You wonder, whoa, why did the jailer react that way? That's pretty harsh. Uh, in that culture, if the soldier or the guard who was entrusted with the care of a prisoner, if that prisoner was lost or escaped, then the soldier or the guard was executed. And, and by the way, you remember that. that. That fact shows up in the book of Acts twice. It shows up in, in the rescue of uh, Peter from prison. Those soldiers were executed for losing Peter. And then it shows up as well in Acts 27. It shows up in the shipwreck where the soldiers were going to kill everybody so that nobody would swim away in the shipwreck and escape. So in that culture, if you lost the prisoner, then you lost your life, which, by the way, was intended to discourage soldiers from taking bribes. And I bet you it worked really well. <laughs> right? What's, you got 50 bucks, you got 100 bucks, you're going to have to do better than that. Right? And so that's what the jailer assumed had happened here. Maybe, I wonder, I don't know, I wonder, had he heard the story of, of, uh, of Peter's rescue? Had he, and, and so there's an earthquake now, and he thinks, okay, an angel has come to set this man of God free. He says, I know how this goes. Uh, Peter, Peter got out, and they executed the, the guards. I guess I'm, I'm next. They've put me in a position where I'm doing war with God. Thanks a lot, guys. And so he's about to kill himself, and Paul cries out, stop. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. Have you ever wondered why Paul didn't make a break for it? He shouldn't have been in prison in the first place, right? It was an, it was an unjust imprisonment. And now here comes God to settle the score, right? It, by the way, doesn't this feel exactly like the stories of David and King Saul? David had already been anointed future king of Israel. Saul had already been rejected. And yet, you know, there was like a fair bit of time of overlap there. And one time, God delivered Saul into David's hand. David's in a cave, hiding with his men. They got their swords out. They're in the dark in the back of the cave. I don't know if they were standing like that. I think they were. And... And Saul comes into the cave to go to the bathroom. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it is so euphemistic. It says that he went into the cave to cover his feet, presumably with his robe, I would hope. Um, and, and so while Saul's in there, David and his men are there, and the men whisper to David, and they're like, here it is. God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Let's go. Kill him. And David says, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's, just, it's not for me to do that. God will take him out when it's the right time. Right? Apostle Paul's in the same situation. An angel has just come and shook the prison doors. Why doesn't he make a run for it? Right? Maybe, maybe he had heard the story of what happened to those guards when, when Peter was set free. And maybe Paul's like, I don't want that. So why did he do it? Right? What was he thinking? We wonder. One thing we know for sure 
it's very obvious from the story that personal freedom was not Paul's ultimate concern. He was on a mission to save souls. And so he was more interested in the salvation of this jailer than he was in his own personal liberty. And that made an impression on the jailer. It convinced him that Jesus was real, even before he'd heard the gospel. Isn't that interesting? He asked, he says, I'm ready to get saved. What's the sinner's prayer? And who's the sinner and who's the sinner? I don't even know. I'm ready. Let's go. He knows nothing. This is before Paul preaches the gospel. All he knows is that he's just met two men who care more about his soul than they care about their own necks. And that made an impression on him. And brothers and sisters, listen to me. That kind of focus, that kind of selflessness, that kind of faith is going to make an impression on our friends and neighbors in this culture. It's going to say something that will be heard and will be remembered. Now, of course, that isn't to say that preaching the gospel is not important. I'm not saying we should, you know, give this witness as opposed to preaching. There's preaching in this story. In verse 32, it says, Paul spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer and his household. So there's preaching in the story. But the hearts of those people had been prepared by the manner of Paul and Silas's suffering. And that's important for us to see. Because what are we always saying in Canada? Every time I, I, I had Juan Sanchez in the car, um, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Juan preached here. And after the service, I drove him, took him out for lunch, drove him down to the airport. And, uh, you know, asking lots of questions. Americans are always fascinated by Canada because all they've ever heard about Canada is what they get on Fox News. And so they think we're all in jail. Like, he's like, dude, you know, am I going to be frisked at the airport? Will I be tasered for preaching at your church? How are you doing? Are you okay? Do you need a hug? I'm like, I'm good to go. Right? Like, I don't know what, you know, and, and it's because they, they hear these weird stories on Fox News, right? And they're thinking, what, what in the world is, is, is going on down there? Right? They want to know. How you doing? But it's interesting. Americans are always wondering, like, how, how's the gospel going in? in Canada. And I always find myself saying, you know, there's a very strong, there's a healthy core, but evangelism is, is, is tough work here because uh, the hearts of Canadians are very hard. And, and often it feels like we're throwing our, our seed against stone. They're very rich, they're very safe, and they're very arrogant, Canadians in general. If you're a Canadian visitor, I don't apologize, but I'm Canadians are very sure of themselves, aren't they? Right? And they're not interested. And so you think, what in the world could maybe soften the hearts of our friends and neighbors? Well, according to this story, what could do that is righteous suffering. If we absorb abuse, if we pray for those who persecute us, if we live and die like we believe in an empty tomb, then I bet you that gets the attention of our watching friends and neighbors. So how do we do this, right? How do we begin to suffer better? We're not doing very well at this. Uh, very early on in the game, as I said, it feels very strange, feels very new. In general, in the Bible, the assumption is if Christians are not behaving quite the way they should be, it's likely because they've forgotten something that they should have known or haven't been told something that they should have been told. And, and you see this all the time. You see, that's why Peter's saying, well, I want to remind you of something. I know you should know this, but I want to remind you. And you see the Apostle Paul doing this. When he sees, for example, the Corinthians, they're behaving like knuckleheads. They're taking each other to small claims court. And, and it's just a disaster over, over petty issues. Paul says to them, do you not know 
that the saints will judge the world? Like, has somebody not told you that you're actually going to sit on the Supreme Court, like the Supreme Court, where all rights are wrong, while all accounts are squared? So you know that it's actually impossible for anyone to defraud you of anything, right? Like, you have been told this, right? Because if you knew that, well, then you wouldn't be freaking out right here over the guy who owes you 25 bucks. Not to worry, not to worry, right? So if you know these things, you start to behave the way you should. That's the assumption. There's a connection in the Bible between knowledge and behavior. So here's the question. What do we need to know in order to suffer like Paul and Silas? We'll we'll end here, okay? Let me just give you two quick things. Two quick things I want you to think about, because according to the Bible, if you think about these things, you'll be better positioned to suffer like Paul and Silas do in the story. So to suffer like them, to suffer like Paul and Silas, first of all, we need to know that we're already dead. Paul knew that, and he was always eager to remind people of that. He he said to the Romans, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you know that that's what baptism is? Baptism is a funeral. It's your funeral. You know, we say all the time, and it's true, you know, baptism is more like a birthday party than a celebration or a graduation party. And that's true because this comes at the beginning of your Christian journey. But it is also, it's a birthday party and a funeral at the same time. And we try to make that as clear as possible. Like it's literally woven into the liturgy. When we put you under the water, it's like putting you into the grave. We'll be more gentle with you at your actual funeral. But that's what we do. We, we put you down there. And while you're under the water, and maybe that's the, where the confusion comes from. You don't hear it because you're under the water. But we say to everyone united in death, and then we raise you up, and you say, raised again unto newness of life. Baptism is a funeral. It's you saying, I understand that I have now died with Christ. My life is hid with him. I understand also that I will rise with Christ, and I will enjoy the eternal kingdom with him. But you are dead. That's the point. If you've been baptized, you've already died. You're dead. It's over right? Now, you say, well, I'm still here. Yeah, you're still here for a reason and for a season, and there's no guarantee how long that will go or how well that will go. But what you can know for sure is that you've been born again into a coming kingdom. The Apostle Paul said this. He said, this is a daily discipline. Of course, it happens at your baptism. You've got to remind yourself. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die every day. Every day I remind myself that I already died. I died at my baptism. And that's how I live the way I live. That's why the Apostle Paul was able to handle what happened to him in Philippi and obviously two other times so well. That's why he didn't swear and fall into a frenzy. That's why he didn't snatch a stick out of the magistrate's hand and start smacking people with it because he was already dead. And therefore, he wasn't fighting to hold on to his life or his temporal rights. My friends, does it feel to you like you're losing your rights and privileges in Canada? I hear from people every day that this, it's a strange thing that when I talk to Christians, if I meet somebody in a coffee shop, and of course they know I'm a pastor, or they see me reading my Bible in a coffee shop, and I get talking, when I get talking to regular Christians out there, I think our people know enough not to start with this, but when I meet with regular Christians out there in the coffee shop, the first thing they want to talk about is how we're losing our rights in Canada as Christians. Why is that the thing you're most concerned about, my fellow dead people? You know that dead people have no rights, right? You're not even a citizen here anymore, really. Your citizenship is in a coming kingdom. 
You have nothing here. You have no rights. What, so why is that the thing we always want to talk about? If we don't wrap our heads around this thing, this, this idea right here, this idea that we're already dead, that we died at our baptism, if you don't get your head around that, if we don't get our heads around that as Christians, we'll never be able to suffer like Paul and Silas do in this story. And then secondly, and, and lastly, if we're going to suffer like Paul and Silas, then we need to know that we will stand before God at the final judgment. Now you say, whoa, pastor, I've caught you in an error. I'm a Bible reader, and I know for a fact it says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's true, it does say that. However, the same Paul who said that also said, 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. So how does that go together? What it means is you will stand before God in final judgment. If you're a real believer, if you're a born-again believer, if you're truly saved, then you won't be condemned, obviously. You're not going to be sent to hell. But you will have to give an account for every word you've spoken and not spoken and everything you've done and not done in the body. You will have a conversation with Jesus about how you used your time in between. From the day you died to this world, to the day you were resurrected to the next, what did you do with that time? You'll have that conversation. Are you ready for it? I'll tell you, this is another funny thing. So, I, you know, I travel around, I speak to Christians in varieties of places. The last couple Sundays I've been in different places. And I won't tell you where, because who knows whether someone's listening. I don't want them to be offended. But at one of the places I was speaking uh, over the last couple of weeks, I mentioned a passage like this. It wasn't this, pas- or it wasn't this sermon, but it was a passage like this about how Christians are, are, are going to be judged. And she came up to me after, and she was very offended. And she said, Pastor, we, w- we will not be judged. On Judgment Day, like, we're going to be resurrected, and we go to the party room. And then, she didn't say party room, but she said, we go to, like, the celebration, woo! And then all the bad, all the sinners, they stand and give an account, and every single one of them here's, you know, guilty, and a shoot opens, and whew, And that was her vision, and she was very offended with this idea that Christians are going to stand before the Lord and give an account. And I showed her passage after passage, and she was not having it. Somebody at some point had told her in Sunday school that, you know, if she prayed this little prayer, then she's got nothing. Judgment Day is not even a thing for her. She, judgment Day is here, and she goes, woo! And she goes right to the party room with the cake, and... And maybe there's a glass window and she can see what's happening, you know, to people like us who didn't, you know, buy into this version of grace that she was selling. It was a, it was a strange conversation. And I was like, how, did, how do we get these ideas into our minds that we hold on to so strongly that are clearly contradicted by multiple passages of Scripture? I have no idea. There's few things more certain in the world that you will one day stand before Jesus and give an account for your life. Now, if you're truly saved, you're not going to be condemned to go to hell. 100%. You will stand and answer. The Apostle Paul, like, let's just argue that he was the better Christian than anyone in this room, myself included, by a country mile. The Apostle Paul fully anticipated standing before Jesus one day and giving an account. He said, 1 Corinthians 3, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone had, has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So he's saying there's some people who will, in essence, walk into heaven like naked people. 
No commendations, no reward. They're saved. They said the prayer, right? They're saved. But they have done nothing of eternal value with the time between when they died and when they were resurrected to stand before God in judgment. Paul says, I'm very eager not to be that person. Everything I'm going to do is going to be tested, and I want everything I do to stand the test of time. And that's why he lived the way he did. Are you ready for that? Are you contemplating that future? Because if you are, then I suspect that will change your attitude when you begin to experience suffering. Suffering and persecution for the Christian only adds to our happiness and joy on that day, on Judgment Day. It will only increase the reward and the responsibility that we are assigned at the final judgment. Apostle Paul said that to young Timothy. He said, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Therefore, as we contemplate the future here in Canada, as we see darker times on the horizon, there is no reason for us to be afraid. And listen, there is also no reason for us to be angry. It's interesting. People respond to threats in two different ways, by and large, human nature, with fear or with anger. And right now, as I look out in the evangelical church in North America, most of what I see is fear and anger. But if we understand these things, there's no reason. No reason for us to be afraid. No reason for us to be angry. Rather, as Jesus said, we ought to rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful example. And more than that, we thank you for the promise of grace that we would be able to follow in it. Lord, uh, we freely confess that we have not always responded well in these early days of difficulty in the culture. Uh, We ask for your forgiveness. And we ask for supplies of grace that we could walk in the way that has been well trod for us. First of all, of course, by Jesus, who kept his eye on the cross, who for the sake of the joy set before him, ignored, despised, scorned that shame, walked that road, established that path as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And then, of course, by so many others who have walked it well before us. Give us grace, Lord, we ask. Give us help to walk as they have done, to walk as Jesus walked. We ask in his precious name. Amen.